I just feel very strongly that it is my job to love the things that I love and to love the ways of operating that I love and to do so publicly and to try to pass those on to as many people as I can, including my family. My job is just to keep those things alive, at least in my own life. And if I can keep them alive in my own life and try to share them as much as I can, then maybe they'll be kept alive for the people who come after me. Welcome to Crazy Good Turns. We celebrate and recognize people who do crazy good things for other people. I'm your host, Frank Blake. And today we have as our guest, a truly extraordinary person, Austin Cleon. Austin is a best-selling writer and artist. He's probably best known for a trilogy of outstanding books, Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, and Keep Going. Those of you who listen to this podcast know that I reference him all the time. His books have over one million copies in print. He's been featured on NPR and the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the list goes on and on. I particularly wanted to feature Austin on this show because... Unbeknownst to him, he does a crazy good turn for me every single week. He publishes a newsletter with typically 10 insights, comments, thoughts, recommendations, and I always learn something from them. I mean, always. So I encourage all of you to sign up for it. And also, as you know, we're doing a special good turn promotion, giving away 50 copies of his recent book, Keep Going. It's my way of doing a good turn back to all of you, our audience. You need to read his books. So with that, let me welcome Austin Cleon. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real treat. And I'll say at the start, one of the things that's interesting to me, I come from the business world, and you're an artist, but what you say and the thought processes you have as an artist are applicable far more universally than I ever would have thought. I don't know if other people have said that to you. But it's extraordinary. I quote you all the time to business leaders. Well, I'm thrilled to hear it. I've always thought that my books were sort of like, you know, more of how to live guides than just making art guides. I suppose there's a streak of armchair philosopher uh, in me. <laughs> so I, I'm thrilled to hear whenever my work is used in other fields because I'm someone who has been inspired by things outside of my own field. And I think that's sort of one of the maybe one of the key takeaways from my books is that to be a voracious devourer of things outside of your field of expertise and do what Brian Eno calls import-export, where you export something from one field and import it into your own and, and sort of make it yours. Well, you're a brilliant exporter. I'll give you, I'll give you one example of a line of yours that I, use, uh, that I use frequently, and maybe you can give some description around it. But the line is about job titles. And if they're taken too seriously, they'll make you feel like you need to work in a way that befits the title, not the way that fits the actual work. Was there some background that drove that? Because boy, is that true. The thing that springs immediately to mind is when I worked in advertising. And I always felt they, they would divide us between, you know, there was accounts and there was creative. And I always thought accounts should think more like creative and creative should think more like accounts. 
<laughs> I always felt like, you know, we we stayed in our own lanes too much. But for me personally, I'm someone who got the career that I have by operating in a very particular way, which is, you know, in the course of trying to figure out things for my own work, I share that those sort of things I've learned freely with others. And I remember after my book, Steal Like an Artist, came out, I was sort of thinking like, well, I'm a real author now. You know, I'm an important person. I should, you know, I shouldn't just be giving things away. And so, you know, I would sit and and I would only, you know, maybe share a blog post every week instead of every day like I used to. And slowly I found out that like, well, actually, this is keeping me from doing the kinds of work that led to my success in the first place. And I think that happens to a lot of people who have any kind of success is, is you start working in the way you think you should instead of the way that you know works. So I just think it's whenever I step back and think, what was it that got me here in the first place? And I go back to those kind of roots, uh, good things happen for me. It is a great universal principle. I love in your latest book, I think you have one of the great first lines. I mean, everybody loves first lines in books, but I love the first line and keep going. The first line for our audience is, I wrote this book because I needed to read it. And that is just brilliant. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, my other books were sort of assemblages of things that I had written for other people, whether it was, you know, Steal Like an Artist was written for me in the past. It was a book that I wish I had had when I was starting out. And my my book after that, Show Your Work, was a book that attempted to answer questions that people had asked me over the years about self-promotion. This was the first book that I was, uh, you know, I, I hit a point in my career about a couple of years ago where I was sort of, you know, I'd been doing it for 10 years. I was feeling pretty burnt out. And then I felt like a lot of the, you know, the kind of tone of social media, you know, things had kind of shifted where I found it very distracting and disheartening to be online in the way that I used to be. And so these two things kind of came together where my career and social media were kind of at these weird points. And I needed some sort of, I needed like a pep talk for myself, basically. <laughs> and so Keep Going was was something, that was the first time I actually wrote something because I saw a empty space on the bookshelf and I wanted to fill it. That is perfect. I love, you have a great section in the book about paying attention to what you pay attention to. That was a line, that was something that this writer named Amy Krauss Rosenthal wrote. And Amy passed away a few years ago, but she was a big influence on me. And what I take from that line, pay attention to what you pay attention to, that's really sort of the first, that's kind of the first creative impulse in a lot of ways and in that actually doing something with your with your thoughts and your thinking. For me personally, that's what a notebook or a daily diary is. When I write in my notebook, when I write down my ideas, when I keep track of my life in my notebook, I will start to detect patterns over time. And often I'll repeat myself. And whenever I find myself repeating myself, I find out, oh, this is something that really matters to me. And part of this was influenced by, I'm a, I'm a big um, Henry David Thoreau junkie, and I started reading his diary a few years ago, and he was a guy who repeated himself a lot in his diaries. He would have the same idea over and over, and those were the ideas that he sort of 
took up and kind of mashed up into his books and his essays. And so I think for someone who wants to lead a more creative life, one of the first things to do is to pay attention to what you pay attention to, because we're often getting our attention caught by things, but we often don't notice our patterns until they're right there in front of us. And do you ever have to correct yourself? Do you ever find yourself going, oh my gosh, I look at what I'm paying attention to now, and that is the wrong, I'm going down the wrong path? Every day. Every day? <laughs> Every day I have to correct yeah. myself in yeah. some ways. I think, I think the pattern recognition thing has actually helped me a lot as a parent. I have two young boys, seven and four, paying attention to my patterns as a parent. I think it's probably the same as like paying attention to your patterns as a worker or a boss or any kind of worker because parenting is the kind of work. I find myself, you know, if I can pay attention to those patterns, I can understand when I'm in them and I can figure out how to get out of them again. <laughs> yeah. Is there someone over the course of your career who's particularly helped you, done something particularly kind for you that notable stands out? Oh, Gosh, so many. The person who is on my mind today, who I'm most grateful for, I don't even really know that she knew what she was doing when she was so kind to me. Um, but there is a woman named Linda Berry, who is a cartoonist. And for the past probably half decade or so, she has been teaching at the University of uh, Madison, University of Wisconsin at Madison. And um, she has a new book out today called Making Comics. And I met Linda through a f mutual friends, a friend of ours. I went to see her speak at Oberlin College when I was, I think, 22 or 23. And I was so enthralled by her. And she let me tag along with my wife. We tagged along with her and my other friend, Dan Sean, um, and sat at the bar for about two hours after the talk. And I swear that I have run a good portion of my career off the fumes of just meeting her when I was that age. And I think that Linda is one of those people who, she manages to change people's lives without even, you know, I don't even know that she's doing it that much. She exudes this kind of magical energy and the way that she talks about creativity and creative work, I, I find so incredibly generous that she just can't help but change people's lives. I, I feel so grateful to her. And I, you know, you have those moments in your life where you just meet the right person at the right time. And she's definitely one of them. That's, that's great. And you have an interesting part of your book about making gifts. And is that something you're conscious of or you're conscious when other people do that for you? I mean, I, I think gratitude is something that that's something I work on a lot these days. I think a lot of us, uh, you know, could stand to, it's a kind of a chaotic time. And, and I think that in my life, it's been really important to have some sort of gratitude practice. And my diaries come into that. I always think of my diaries as kind of like, they're like paper prayers <laughs> in a sense. But as far as gifts go, I think that I was really inspired by this book called The Gift um, by this guy named Lewis Hyde. In Hyde's work, he talks about how you can't really have art without some kind of gift aspect. Hyde's idea is that the artist is awoken to their gifts through the gifts of others, and then they pass on that gift 
in their own work. So for example, if we go back to Linda, you know, her gifts as a speaker, as a as a thinker, as a cartoonist, my own sort of gifts were awoken through her. And the way that I pass those gifts on now is through my books and through my work. And hopefully the people who get that stuff will then, you know, pass those gifts on in, in their work. And so I've been really influenced by Hyde's work and that idea of the gift. And I, in the book in particular, I wanted people to, whenever they felt like they had sort of gotten too business-like with things or too, um, you know, like the business side of things has really ruined their love of their work, to think about how they can pull their work back into that gift world and to do things you know, purely for the generosity of it. It's actually interestingly true even on the business side. To really succeed in business, you have to be focused on your customer. You have to be thinking about giving and serving. And it, it isn't. The best businesses always aren't about the bottom line. They're about something else. It's another universal truth. I think again, this is something that I've I've learned from the few business people I know, which is sort of when you think of your work as, you know, to think of every job that you do as a service job. And when I think of my job as serving the reader, or serving that gift, in some ways, things go much better for me than if I just think, well, what's you know, how am I going to pull. More How are you going to commercialize this? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we've done a, a couple now of uh, promotions of your book, and part of it is listeners can get 10 books that you recommend for reading, and it is such a diverse list. <laughs> and I'm, I'm curious as to what's the string that holds them all together for you. Uh, me, I would be the <laughs> string, I guess. I, well, I'm I'm attracted to books that are. I mean, first of all, I'm I'm very much. Uh, I think about the line from Alice in Wonderland. You know, she says, "What is the point of a book without any pictures in it?" I'm, I'm a person who is very interested in books that manage to merge pictures and words together. I think you know when we're young, we have books with pictures in them and we sort of understand that language and how that works and then over time we're sort of told that serious books have words in them and we uh, you know we we graduate to chapter books and things like that so i'm always interested in people who manage to write very visual books for for people of all ages so that that's something that you might detect in a lot of uh the work that i love but also i like work that is light in in a on a sentence-to-sentence level, I, I like work that has a sort of element of joy or lightness in it. You can take on a serious topic and still have a sort of lightness and playfulness uh, to your prose. And so I always appreciate books that have a sort of lightness or comedic uh, touch to them. And I also like things, I'm sort of obsessed with books and how they're structured. I like books that are structured in a way that make it real easy for the reader. Personally, and I feel this very strongly, even though I consider myself to be a very serious reader, I think reading should be a joy. I think it should be fun, and I th think it should make you feel alive when you're doing it. The older I get, the more I sort of err on the side of the books that keep me turning pages, the books that I really resonate with, those are the right books. And the books that I sort of have to slog through, they're just not the right books for me at this moment. 
That is so that is so interesting because I've got to tell you, Austin, one of the common things I've given your book to just a lot of people, including every single person in my family. And the first reaction is, you know, first off, I, I think people are a little, oh, gosh, Frank's giving me a book. I guess I have to read it. <laughs> and then they get the book and they go, oh, my gosh, this looks like it's fun. And they start immediately reading it. The, so the accessibility that you give in your books is, is a real plus. It is so much more inviting than the typical book. So congratulations on, on being able to accomplish that. Well, thank you. I, I like that word inviting because that's what I want my work to be. I, I want all of my work to be an invitation in a sense. Not just to, I, I don't just want the book to be inv inviting, but I want the message to be inviting. And the message is sort of like, you know, come along, you know, come with us, like check out this thing we're all doing. This is maybe a little bit of an irritating desert island question, but if you could only take three books to a desert island and that's what you were going to read for the next 20 years, what are the three books you'd take? Oh my goodness. I, you know, I have not thought about this for a while. I'm trying to think here. What, what are the books that would give me joy over and over? I'm looking at a book of Michelle de Montaigne's essays right now, and I've never been able to read all those, and I think that would keep me busy for a really long time. Uh, he has such a lightness of spirit, and he's very funny, so I might go with that. I would probably bring a cartoon collection. I would probably bring... I would either bring a Peanuts book, like a Charlie Brown. Oh, that's interesting. Where it was strips. I love to read Nancy, Ernie Bushmiller's old <laughs> I I was, when you were describing my book, someone once said of Nancy, it's easier to read it than to not read it. <laughs> I've always loved that. I might bring my edition of Thoreau's journal the abridged. It, it's meant so much to me in the past couple of years, and I think there's so much wisdom in there. Uh, that Those are the three books I would bring right now. I don't know. The Montaigne one is a weird one, but uh, I, I, I know that that's inspired people such as, you know, Shakespeare read Montaigne, <laughs> Thoreau read Montaigne. So I would probably go with that, too. So those are, those are the three. But I would definitely bring a cartoon collection with me, because I love... I I have a particular fondness for collections of newspaper comics. There's something about having a bunch of newspaper strips in a book that I just love that form. I love reading collections of comics like that. That's a, that's a really interesting unique idiosyncratic list. That's a that, that's a great list. I got to do one other quote just to from you that I'd love you to talk about a bit. And and the quote is to the effect of, you don't want to hear about the 30-year-olds who become rich and famous. You want to hear how an 80-year-old spent her life in obscurity but kept making art and lived a happy life. I wanted to know what was behind that. It's interesting. I was really inspired the past couple of years. There have been some really good documentaries come out about for lack of a better terminology, senior citizen artists. <laughs> so I was, I'm a huge David Hockney fan, the painter. And I went to one of his shows recently and I just, I, I, a couple of years ago, and I just couldn't believe that this guy in his eighties was just doing this incredible, like still just painting these masterful 
paintings. I was inspired by like uh, the Joan Rivers documentary piece of work, the way she talks about keeping it fresh and, and stuff like that. And again, I was sort of thinking to myself, you know, what what am I in this for? Like, what would a good life look like if I get lucky enough to get the years? And I started realizing that the people I all admire, I mean, they're they're just able to pull out, you know, maybe one or two or three careers even out of their lives. You know, they were able to sort of reinvent or keep things fresh. Those are the people that I want to pay attention to because, you know, we're a culture that celebrates quick success. We're all about the, you know, there's always some 25-year-old who just sold his startup <laughs> and we celebrate them and I read the obituaries a lot. <laughs> that's something that <laughs> that's something that I do and I I'm always looking for what is the shape of a good life? What does it look like at the end to and so I was really inspired by people like Bill Cunningham uh who got on his bicycle every day and took pictures and and did the wonderful fashion spreads in the New York Times. I just looked to my elders to people who have managed to hang in, particularly in the creative fields. I don't remember which obituary it was, but this guy said, I've woken up every day of my life wondering if I could do it again today. And it was a writer. (laughs) I thought, that's really the reality of it. That's really the reality of doing this kind of work where you have to come up with new ideas and, and new things all the time. Is You not only have to have the endurance to get through it but you also have to just be okay with the uncertainty that you know you're going to wake up one day and just have nothing but then if you keep at it and you wake up the next week you're going to find something and to have that kind of hope and and faith in your process and to just stick around long enough for your efforts to pay off is just something that I think that our elders can show us that's terrific that's that's Amazing. Are there some holiday stories that you'd share, things that made a huge impact on you as a child or as an adult? I have to say that, you know, Christmas, I I come from a, my parents are divorced and, and Christmas was not always the most pleasant season when I was growing up. I have been thrilled in my life to be able to sort of start over again with my own family and enjoy Christmas. I actually, every year, I read Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I think there's a reason it's lasted all these years. I think it's um, it always speaks to me. You know, when when Jacob Marley rattles his chains and says, "Business, you know, mankind was my business." That always shakes me up. It's I love it. That is probably one of my favorite rituals at Christmas time is to read Dickens. And that book in particular is worth reading over and over again. You know, something that's changed my life a lot too is um, being a rereader. I really believe in um, every time you come to a book, the same book, you're a different person. And so it's a different book for you. And the books that you come to again and again the reason they can feed you over and over is is because you're different each time. You've gone through more, and you can pull more out of them. I know in the, we're sort of in this world where there's just so much at our fingertips. We, there's so much that we feel we should be reading. Like, why read an old book when you could read a new one? But um, I think it's really important to keep those books around that really speak to you and to pull them out every once in a while and because they kind of show us how far we've come. 
So a broad last question. And one, one of the things that really was the start of your discussion about how you think about art and how you think about art pulling people together and what's happening now, do you feel like you're rowing against the tide on that, the way people are interacting with content, the way they actually seem to want to be divided? Or do you think where you are, there, it's actually the tide starting to come in? I think that the older I get, the more that I think that everyone, whether it's in a democracy or whether it's just in your life, I think everyone needs to pick like one or two or three things that they want to kind of carry the torch for, you know? So for me, it's like, um, if we're talking about, you know, things that I want to save in the country, it would be like public libraries, for example, like the public library is a thing that I care deeply about. It's inspired me endlessly. And I think that it's a good thing for a healthy democracy. So that, that's something I can throw all my efforts in. But I don't know where the tide is headed, but I just feel very strongly that it is my job to love the things that I love and to love the ways of operating that I love and to do so publicly and to try to pass those on to as many people as I can, including my family. My job is just to keep those things alive, at least in my own life. And if I can keep them alive in my own life and try to share them as much as I can, then maybe they'll be kept alive for the people who come after me. And I just, I don't think about it too much beyond that. That is brilliant. And I can tell you, as I said at the start, for me and I think a, an awful lot of other people, you do a crazy good turn, not only with your books, but every week with your newsletter. I always look forward to opening them. It's a great treat uh, going through them. So thank you very much for doing that. And I encourage all of our listeners to sign up, buy your books, follow you. Why don't you tell everybody what's the best way to get in touch with the things you do? I'll just type my name into the Google box. Yeah, austincleon.com. And, and you'll find my blog and my newsletter and all my books. Perfect. Thanks very much, Austin. It's been an incredible pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Frank. This was a pleasure. That was Austin Cleon. I so appreciate his being on the podcast. To find out more about him, please go to austincleon.com. And I highly recommend that you subscribe to his newsletter. It is brilliance on a weekly basis. Our show is recorded at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. Thank you, Greg. Editing by Stephen Key and mixing by Score Score in Los Angeles. Special thanks to our production team of Brian Sabin and Megan Hanlon. Until next time, this is Frank Blake thanking you for listening and celebrating another crazy good turn.